0: good morning and I greet you in Jesus name welcome you to this part of our service again as we studied our Sunday school lesson looking at that event that is so integral to our our religion our uh, our uh, our existence as Christians and yet as I sat there and and thought about the the uh, events that we briefly looked at in roughly three-quarters of an hour, the, uh, the the things that are stated in those verses. Um, I'm almost bothered by the fact that I don't think I can completely grasp the trauma that um, Jesus and those around him that day faced. You know, we talk about post-traumatic stress disorder. I don't know. That seems like you would have really suffered from something like that. And yet, we don't read a lot about anybody having, anything about anybody having post-traumatic stress disorder over that event. Uh, we have a few discouraged disciples, but perhaps that speaks to the, um, uh, to what happens, um, when a person is a Christian, um. I don't know. It's 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 something that something happens and something happens in your soul, and and you can face life with a with a um, with a surety that you couldn't otherwise. So anyway, we'll leave that. I uh, I did appreciate our study there this morning. Turn with me to the book of James again, if you would. I realize this is Palm Sunday, and perhaps it would be more appropriate to look at that more. Uh, particularly, I didn't choose to do that this morning, although I may draw that in a bit here, I'm going to be looking at a short few verses out of James chapter 4, and, and this is um, this is a very unorthodox and probably inappropriate way to study a book, and if it bothers you that we've been skipping around the book of James, hither and thither, and pulling from here and there, and not really going through it systematically, be it known, it bothers me too. Um, i don 't think that 's the way to study a book, but there 's something about it that sometimes a man 's um, mind goes in a certain direction and you can 't get it out of that groove and uh, so you just may as well go ahead and speak about it because that's that 's what you just feel like you should and the The theme is in here in the book of james, and we 're going to uh, we 're going to look at that theme and hopefully maybe we 'll get back on track at another point but for now we 're going to look at um, Verses 13 through 17 of chapter 4. I'll just maybe read that at this point. Go to now ye that say, today or tomorrow we will go into such a city, and continue there a year, and buy and sell, and get gain. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time, and then vanisheth away." For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live, and do this, or that. But now ye rejoice in your boastings, all such rejoicing is evil. Therefore to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. How should you and I as Christians look at the future? Should we do so with worry, with apprehension, with presumption? with no thought at all, just kind of willy-nilly go through life and whatever happens the next day it will be that and not really give any, any thought or, or anticipation to that. Is there a difference? Should there be a difference between the way I as a Christian and those around me who are not Christians view the future? You know, I think our thoughts about the future... Will dictate the decisions we make in our lives today. And again, I would say it would be interesting to know what your thoughts are about the future, uh, your future, the future. Um, I had to think of uh, two men that I I know when I thought about the subject. The one man is a Christian man. He's had some hard times in his life, and uh, and whatever um but he he ha, he has always been very interested in um, in uh, the prophetic parts of the Bible you know the, the Bible speaks to the future and what we can anticipate as, as time moves along here and um, i don 't dispute some of his conclusions he comes to in fact, I find it in some ways interesting to talk to him about his conclusions, but I will say that I have been glad already that I'm not around him just every day, because in his somewhat apocalyptic view of the future, it can get almost disheartening, almost discouraging to be constantly focused on the doom and gloom that could and maybe will happen. That that can almost get to a person. While I don't dispute his conclusions, I I do think that it it is almost borderline unhealthy, the... uh, the um, his view on things but we'll leave that um that's his um that's his take on things on the other hand i have some friends and acquaintances that um either are not christians or are very shallow at best and i'm interested that their view of the future and uh, the future of their lives and and the world and so on it's kind of their world view if you will is um it's all going to work out i i mean Never mind what happened here in 2020, whatever. Um, never mind the, tra- the, the, the seeming trajectory of the world and the uh, concerning things that are around us and the world and so on. Never mind that. It'll all get back to normal. It always does. It, it, it's just a cycle we're going through here. And, you know, you know, and, and they will point to, um, you know, bad times in the past. And, you know, it, it always gets better. It just that's kind of the general trajectory. So on the one hand you got this thing that it's all going to be doom and gloom, and then you got it; it's going to get better. Which is it going to be? Is there something halfway in the middle that is more, more correct? I don't know. Um, I want to unpack this a little as we go. I also was recently listening to a sermon a few months ago, around the time of New Year's. I uh, it was I don't necessarily know the person. Well, I guess I do know him, but not not well, not personally. But he was preaching a a sermon there on. Uh, on New Year's and, and so on. And I can't exactly remember the title of, of his talk. But the essence of what he was saying was, if you want to know what your year will be like in 2021, all you need to do is look and see how it was in 2020. And he goes, pretty much what your past is, is what your future, what can be anticipated in the future. And, and what he was saying, what he was, tr- the, the point he was trying to make is, how you and I relate have related to our situations in the past will largely um, be how we relate to them in the future. And so, uh, while maybe the situations will be different, um, if you relate to the past, if you have related in a godly way and you 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 have uh, you have done well there, you will do well in the future. If you have related in an ungodly way or a less than ideal way. You probably will do the same in the future, and he also was making the point that that time somewhat moves slowly, like there isn't often sudden left-hand turns in life. Uh, th- those tend to be more gradual bends, and so maybe we're in a bend in the road, but you know we're not going to completely do a you know a complete uh, left-hand turn. Probably, it was just an interesting thought process that he had, and um, there's probably a measure of truth. To that. But I will say this. Let's get to our Palm Sunday, uh, theme now. Do you suppose anybody in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday had any inkling that a week from Palm Sunday things would have happened? All those events would have transpired and we would have had a crucifixion and we would have had a resurrection and we would have had the entire course of history changed in three days. Did anybody think about that on Palm Sunday? I would say not. That would be my conclusion that nobody could have guessed at, including his disciples. The disciples, even after his resurrection, said, will you now at this time establish your kingdom? Will you do that? Will you deliver us from the Romans now? They still hadn't even got it at that point. Personally, on a personal level, and this is why my mind obviously went this direction, I wasn't here last Sunday because of a uh, of a very unexpected event in, in my personal family. Um, I had known that my brother-in-law was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer three, week, three years ago this April. But he had done so well for two years that I had made the comment several times those two years that I, I really had forgotten that Dwayne was sick. When I was around him, he did not remind me of a person that had stage 4 melanoma. Um, seemed like a healthy person. He was; his personality was still the same. His usual way of relating uh, to me um, and those that I that we knew well were much the same. It, it wasn't like he had a. He just didn't seem like a sick person, or anybody was facing anything ominous in his life. And and it was it. it also, um, some of you know this, but the Saturday before he passed away, on a Monday. I had visited with Dwayne on the phone for a half an hour. I had called uh, to talk to my sister, and I would heard Dwayne there in the background, and I asked Colleen if if Dwayne's up, and she said, yeah, he is, and he wants to talk to you. I said, well, great, I want to talk to him too. So we had talked for a half an hour, and, um, and in our conversation, we talked about how he was anticipating uh, starting some uh, new regimen of treatments that that coming Monday, and uh, he had told me that day, he said, yeah, you know, they're talking probably six months to a year is probably what I have, you know, to be just realistic about it. And so um, our siblings had been talking about uh, how we should proceed with my parents' 50th wedding anniversary celebration here in a month. And we weren't sure what we should do about that. But I called them after my conversation with Dwayne and I said, let's proceed. I, I, he'll be around. He'll be around in a month, and, and I don't think he'll be none the worse for the wear. I think, if anything, he'll be a bit better. And little did I know that less than 48 hours later, he would pass. It, so while I anticipated that probably at some point he would pass, I did not anticipate it would be in 48 hours. I did not, no, none of us did, not even my sister. And I'm sure it has crossed your mind, changing thoughts here a little bit, I'm sure it's crossed your mind that if you would go back a year ago, this would have been Sunday number two in a series of nine, that we stayed home and we twiddled our thumbs and we did what we could do uh, to try to to uh, slow the spread of coronavirus. Anybody remember that? I certainly do. Middle of March last year, I would have never guessed. Yeah, There's no way I could have what this year would have brought forth, or this past year. And then as the year wore on, um, the unbelievable political and social unrest that uh, came down the pike here in our nation, and while that's never been completely um, completely unheard of, we had a lot of that in the 60s too, and so on, Again, what I, could I have I predicted the complete unrest worldwide that the death of one black man in Minneapolis would have? Could I have predicted that? I, I couldn't have. Maybe you could have, but I certainly couldn't have. And so we have this sampling, small sampling of how my personal world, and, and to some degree yours as well, has changed in ways that we absolutely could not have predicted so let 's look at a few things here that um, James has to say about how we as Christians could or should relate to the future and I have I think about six points here, and we'll bump down through them and and um, and just uh, think about these things a little bit. The first one I see is in uh, verse thirteen <clears throat> I think it's human nature, and I 'd even say maybe a normal desire of us as human beings, to anticipate a future that is better than the past or the present. Or at least we anticipate that possibility. And I think we somewhat unconsciously even plan for that. Um, You know, these people here in uh, the illustration that James gives, he says, they're saying, they're making an assumption that they would live till tomorrow and that they would be able to travel to that city, and they wouldn't have a camel wreck along the way, and that they were going to buy and sell. And not only were they going to buy and sell, they weren't going to lose money when they did it. They were actually going to gain. All right, so they had a lot of plans here. We're going to get up tomorrow morning. We're going to get on our camels. We're going to go to this, this city. We're going to sell some stuff, and we're going to sell their profit. Good for them. I hope that all worked out for them that way. But that, that's what James says, that that's kind of how we think. You know, the past can't be changed. We know that, and that's why we're admonished in the Bible, and we tell each other that sometimes, and we tell ourselves that, that we shouldn't dwell in the past, because no matter how much we regret the past, how much we wish we could change the past, how much we'd have done things different in the past if we could relive the past, we can't do anything about the past. It's over, it's sealed, it's written, it's done. But the future... Is the And the possibilities that come with the future are really as wild as our imaginations. I know a man, he's a little bit of an eccentric, and he's, he's, he's a different gentleman, I'll have to admit. But he is a Powerball lottery ticket buyer. And he not only does this randomly, he does this in a very calculated uh, way. He watches diligently where the Powerball is being played, where the tickets are being bought, and he looks to see what parts of the country the um, you know the last winner has um, you know, where where did that person live? And he keeps track of this and, and he, he calculates his odds of actually winning the Powerball at some point. And he is himself convinced that at some point he will win the Powerball lottery. If he plays long enough, he will win that. To the degree that he will even share with me what he intends to do with that money after he wins it. I mean, he, he, has, uh, he has visions of the future that I don't share, to be honest. It's just very interesting. He's very optimistic, I'll have to say. But in some ways, optimism is a good thing as we look to the future. I'm not saying that isn't a, a good and and uh, a healthy and pleasant way to live. As a matter of fact, I would say that if we don't have any optimism about the future at all, um, we lose hope, and we become anxious because of the anticipation of undesirable things in the future. Um, That's why people commit suicide. That's why people have to visit the doctor about um, depression sometimes. They have lost hope. That's not a very... Very good way to live. It kind of renders us useless to any meaningful contribution to society. And I would just point to uh, the prophet Elijah and the prophet Jeremiah. Both of those, both of those prophets uh, had some very despondent times, and when they hit the, the despondency, their effectiveness in the Lord's kingdom stopped. In the case of Elijah, I think it's a, it's especially interesting. That as he sat there in that cave and was depressed about his future, what did the Lord say? Go down there and see that doctor there in Galilee or whatever, and uh, see if he can sign you up for a few pills that will help you out here. He said, no, Elijah. He said, you get up and you get busy. I have things for you to do. i got a I got a a king you need to anoint. I've got uh, a message for this person, and you need to get another helper. I think it was a, there was a three things or something like that that God told him to do. In other words, he said, you gotta forget the past, you gotta get out of your despondency, and you gotta go do something constructive. I would just say this. I think it, while I think it is healthy to view the future with optimism, I think it is equally healthy and uh, correct and godly to let it be tempered a bit that we really have little control about what the future could bring and what it possibly will bring. And so if we can take those, the combination of those two, healthy optimism, but at the same time be realistic enough to, to understand that what we plan for may not work out the way we have planned it to happen. Number two, I also get from verse 13, We as humans, I think, tend to anticipate that in largely all things will continue in the future as they have in recent memory. And I think that's why these people here in this verse that that, uh, James gives us illustration said we're going to go buy and sell, get gain, and we're going to do these things because they had done it in the past. They probably had done it the day before. They had no reason to think that they couldn't do it again the next day. Perhaps this is the biggest potential mistake that we make. Um, We as humans really have no other metric to measure the future by than our own experience. That tends to be the yardstick we use, is our experience. Um, That is why the, uh, the generation that lived through the 30s saved every newspaper and every You name it, and they wouldn't throw anything away because their experience was that, you know what, hard times are hard times, and we remember a time when this was not easily came by, and we're not throwing it away just in case it would happen again, and so they were using that metric of past experience of how we're going to live in the future. Our generation has no concept of that whatsoever. We're used to, um, if we want it, we're going to Walmart and we're going to get it. And we do. And we found it extremely um, hard to exist when Walmart ran out of toilet paper last spring, didn't we? We didn't know what to do. We were not, we were not um, prepared for something like that. And just as an aside, um, I don't know the last time I've gone to Fleet Farm and picked up Every item I wanted at Fleet Farm when I was there. For some odd reason, it seems like it's a game right now that um, we're just not going to have everything you need. So I'm learning to adjust a little bit, maybe as I have not in the past. But my whole point is, is we use our past as a metric to measure the future, and that has been unhealthy for this generation because our recent past has been so overwhelmingly easy, and uh, we can almost exist... Thoughtlessly and on a shoestring, in some ways. I mean, with hardly any any thought that that something could go haywire. I think this is some of the problem that the scoffers had in First Peter when Peter talks about the scoffers. It say, "What? Jesus is coming again? What do you mean? I mean, since the fathers have fell asleep, I mean, look at the generations that have passed." Nothing's happened. there isn't no Jesus coming back. Why would we think that would happen? It was because they're basing the future on their past. Not really a good thing to base it on i'd say i would I would suggest the people at the flood had the same problem, even though they watched Noah, which they knew they knew this man was a godly man, and they watched him build that boat and they listened to his sermons, and I think they passed by Noah and they 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 talked with him. But in their minds, it wasn't going to rain because it had never rained before. And no matter what Noah said, and no matter how much he built that ark with however much fervor he had, they paid him no mind. Lot's son-in-law, another uh, another uh, example of people that was like, come on, we moved to Sodom because it's a safe place, and you're telling us that Sodom's going to be destroyed? Our recent memory does not, Line up with your predictions, I recently visited with a man, a good man, a Mennonite man, a man that I have no reason to uh, to question his his uh, his Christian walk. But there was one thing about him that bothered me a lot, and that was our for some reason, our conversation had turned toward um, our current times. And the unrest and, and the different things, and and um, I think I made a comment of some sort about uh, you know, uh, you you know the, the the signs of the time would lead me to believe that we're you know the the sunset is here on time, and we this generation should be thinking uh, uh, in terms that we could well see the return of the Lord in our generation. And he poo pooed that, and I was a little shocked. He was like. We've heard that a long time. He said they said that during the Civil War. They said that in the 30s. He said it in the 60s. We're saying it today. And he's just kind of left it go. Well, that's true. That's very true. But is it not healthy for every generation to look out his window and say, it could happen? And here's why I think that. Again, I think... I think this man's mistake that he was making is he was pulling from the recent past as his metric to measure the future. Proverbs 27 one says, Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Jesus, different times in his earthly walk, urged his disciples to be watchful and perceptive. And he took a whole chapter in Matthew 24 to teach on this subject. And in that chapter, there's woven—it's um, a little bit hard sometimes to to even decipher as I read through it. What what part of his conversation there with the disciples that day was intended for us, and what part of that conversation was intended for that generation? Uh, to be watchful for the coming fall of Jerusalem. Some of it is clear, some of it is a little unclear to me. However, I'll just say this. Uh, I, I'm sure you know this, but just as a reminder, I'm told historians would indicate that there was no Christians that fell or, or, or were killed in Jerusalem during the sacking of Titus of Jerusalem in AD 70 because they had paid attention to what Jesus had said and they had gotten out of there when the getting was good. So they paid attention. And they did not use the past as their metric, but they used what Jesus had foretold as the uh as their as 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 the uh, the point of uh, their decision making. So I guess our challenge today would be let's be perceptive. Let's be awake enough to understand that there is absolutely no guarantee of a future like our past. Our past has been very prosperous, it's been very peaceful, it's been very undisturbed. And while I don't think we need to worry or fret about it, I do think we need to make wise and thoughtful decisions. And I think this gets right down into the very, very mundane parts of life. Um, and maybe it's because I'm just a little bit conservative or, or a little bit uh, apprehensive. Uh, I'm not a very risk-taking kind of a person. But in our current climate and stuff, I I would see a lot of um, a lot of reason not to go out and borrow oneself in hock deep uh you know, on some thirty year business venture. So, so for some reason that feels like um, presuming on a little too much. But again, maybe maybe it's my my apprehension, my normal Dwight Burkholder apprehension coming out there. But you, 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 apply, you apply it to where the Lord speaks to you, but I think it's wise not to necessarily anticipate uh, the future to be like we've had in the recent past. Third point I'd like to, to, to draw from this um, particular passage, again, from verse 13. We as the human race almost universally are prone to misplace our priorities in life. There's a natural ambition, I think, among us as people for security. Um, we like to we like to be secure, and especially secure our future. And one way we feel very secure is if we have sufficient monetary assets. And I think this has been somewhat a default course of action since the beginning of the world, to be honest, since the fall of man, anyway. And to some degree, good productive work and the reward for that labor is not wrong. Um, But it seems to me there's only a short step between a godly view of the pursuit of gain and a very ungodly pursuit of gain. And I would point out that there is plenty of scripture uh, that we could point to and quote that espouses the satisfaction and the rightness of work and the rewards that come from that. Um, Read through the book of Proverbs. About every 10th verse will tell you that, you know. You till the ground, you have plenty of bread. If you're a slothful person, you can expect you'll be a pauper. And, And that theme just kind of flows through the book of Proverbs. New Testament, we could turn to something like Ephesians 4, where it says, let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing that is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. And so I think we can settle it that there's absolutely nothing wrong with um, with this type of activity, but I think the issue lies in the in in the consuming passion that sometimes our occupations and our pursuit of wealth can bring to us. And again, I don't have to. I don't have to reiterate this. You know it. If you turn to Matthew 6, Jesus teaches plainly and clearly on this subject that we as humans, as Christians, should not worry about tomorrow. Take no thought, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Wherewithal shall we be closed? But here's what he says. He says, after all these things, the Gentiles seek. The non-Christians are worried about these things. But your heavenly Father knoweth that you have need of these things. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Take no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. And then the parable that he gives in Luke 12 of the farmer with the good year and the bin-busting crop. And he says, well, you know, what am I going to do with this? He says, well, I'll tear down my barns and I'll build, Build bigger barns. And so he did that, and he put his crops in there. And when it was all said and done, he said, Soul, you have much goods laid up for many years. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. And I think that that farmer that night felt really secure. I think he went to bed, and he felt good. He said, You know what? I'm, I'm 60 years old. I got enough goods there. My calculations should get me to 75, no problem. And in fact, I got more than I need. I think I can even be merry in the process. I think I'll be able to buy a vacation home in Florida somewhere. I'll be able to go down every winter. Um, I'll just, I'll take it easy. But God said unto him, "You're a fool. You're an absolute fool. This night, your soul will re- be required of thee." And then He asks a question. Then whose shall these things be which thou hast provided? I have a question I'd like to ask. By the indication of that question, that farmer was a little mixed up. He failed to realize that the things that he thought would buy him a secure future were already God's. He had to die to find that out. The obvious teaching here is the foolishness of trusting in our excess to allow us to enjoy a life in a very selfish way. We have absolutely no promise of tomorrow. I'm always impressed as I read through the book of Numbers, whenever the manna began to fall in the wilderness and God began to provide for the for the Israelites in that way, the instruction was take no more than you need for one day. That's it, one day. When you get to Friday, you're allowed to take for two because on Saturday I don't want you going out picking up manna. And if you dared to take more than one day, it'll breed worms and stink. There was a there, there was a definite um, hands-on illustration that God was trying to give His people, and I believe that was, I know your need, and I will provide for you exactly one day at a time. But don't worry about it; it will be there every day. And God came through on that. Riches are fickle, and to trust in them is very foolish. On our way back to Pennsylvania last week. Um, Sterling and I listened to uh, uh, a a biography of the Wright brothers. It's it's kind of odd that we would do that because I have absolutely no interest in airplanes or anything like that. I fly on them as little as I can. Sorry, Austin, but not really into it a lot. But anyway, you know, you got to pass time, and you'll do really strange things when you got time to burn. So we listened to this. Very interesting. I did end up enjoying it a lot. But uh, the Wright brothers' um, father. Was a bishop in the United Brethren Church, which interestingly enough is a shoot off the Mennonite Church, so you could say there's a little bit of a shirt-tail relationship there. But anyway, his motto for living was this. One only needs enough in life to avoid being a burden to society. And you know, that's about right. I think that's a biblical worldview. I'll just drop this for what it's worth too. I've been interested recently. I read about a, um, and again, this doesn't even really interest me, but it was a random article that I came across of how in the world we live in with technology and the the um, ability for Joe blows as dumb as me to get on the internet and do day trading and and uh, and, and and get into um, um, like I can be my own broker. I mean, I can I can do these things. I can pull strings and end up making supposedly millions. Supposedly there are people that do this make millions doing nothing other than trading on the computer. Uh, whatever, whatever they're all trading in, I, I'm not exactly even sure. But I don't know, somehow or the other, I just have a real caution about that. Um, is it really Christian to use speculation as a means of gaining quick wealth? Somehow or the other, this kind of fit the bill here about buying and selling and getting gain. Um, I'll just say this. I think real work is still an honorable way to make a living, and I think it's very biblical. Number four. Another thing I pull from this short set of verses is very concise and to the point. Your life and my life, no matter how long it is, is short. It's not a new thought or an idea, but the older I get, the more real that idea has become to me, and is periodically and regularly impressed upon me. And I will have to say that uh, last weekend was one of those weekends. Uh, my brother-in-law was exactly one month younger than I, forty-nine years old, and he's no longer with us. Peter said it well when he said, "All flesh is as grass." And all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. What's the glory of grass? We mow that stuff every week. It lasts about a week, doesn't it? The grass withers, the flower thereof falleth away. In a very familiar verse in Psalms 90, the days of our years are threescore and ten, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore, yet is their strength labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off, and we fly away. I think it is imperative that we think honestly about this reality, and I think it would do a lot for us to properly prioritize our lives if we keep this thought in front of us. Right here in verse 14, um, James says, what's your life? He says it's like vapor. What's vapor? Vapor is that stuff that comes out of your teapot when you have it on the stove in a stream about that long. You can see it for about that much time, and it's gone. Vapor coming out of a teapot isn't, isn't good, because what it means is, A, it's too hot, and B, you're losing water. Okay, The water you put in, you're going to have less coming out if you let that vapor uh, go too much longer. But on the other hand, if you properly harness that vapor, you can move a freight, a freight train. Right, so there is some good that comes out of vapor. So the question that behooves you and I to ask ourselves is, what are we doing with our vapor? Are we just losing water, blowing steam, or are we moving some freight trains? If I understand the shortness of my life, I think I would be less inclined to procrastinate. I think those grudges and unholy attitudes that I hold toward people, I will let them go. And I will make a real effort to reconcile. I think I will be more attuned to the opportunities for service in God's kingdom. And that will become more important to me than buying and selling and getting gain. And above all, I won't be like old King Felix there that day. Paul, I think tomorrow would be a better day. I just think tomorrow would be a better day. Not that I dispute what you're saying. As I sit here and listen to your sermon on righteousness and temperance and the judgment to come, it resonates with me. But I think tomorrow will be a more convenient season. He stands as a timeless example of what happens when we decide that tomorrow is a better time than today to take care of those problems. The bottom line is you and I need to have an eternal perspective of our mortal terrestrial existence and the limited amount of time that we have to accomplish what we should. Am I procrastinating? Are you procrastinating today doing something that is important? And are you sort of presuming on tomorrow to get that important thing done? My challenge would be, let's be careful by that, that attitude. We have no idea how close we are to the end of that vapor. We could be right there. Point number five. I get from verse 15 and 16. <clears throat> let's lay aside the temptation to of evil boasting of plotting a a plan to secure our future all by ourselves. And rather, let's cultivate the godly perspective of placing ourselves in the hands of an almighty God who has our absolute best in mind. James says here that this thing of uh, saying we're going to go into the city and buy and sell and do these things, he goes, that is evil boasting. He goes, all such rejoicing is evil. You know, old brother Job there, he started out his day one day very, very normally. I don't know what a normal day was for him, but it was normal. It had to take a long time to feed all his livestock and so on, but it was a normal day. But by nightfall of that same day, he was reduced to a pauper with no sympathy from friends or family. That was Job's story. So it didn't matter what Job may have been tempted or did boast about that mo- that morning. His His plans were upended to a degree that probably very few human beings have seen in the history of time. So how much en- energy should you and I expend on securing our future with these kinds of instructions? I'm not sure... I'm not sure how much time we we should expend and how much money we should expend. Because I I do know that in in one respect, um, it feels like some preparation for the future is in order. Um, I'm only 50, but I sure can't work like I was when I was 20. I'm so happy I got 13-year-old boys to do my work for me now. It's unbelievable. So there is that part of it. But there's got to be some happy medium here. That at some point, enough is enough. And uh, I'll let the Lord speak to you on that one. And by all means, the, uh, the writer here, James, has some good advice for us. He goes, but you should say, if it is the Lord's will, we'll do this or that. And I think that is an extremely good perspective. And I think it's something that we should even voice more than we do. If the Lord wills, I'll have dinner. In a few hours. Verse 17 is point number six. Very short verse. Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. And often we we quote this verse in a very broad context. If I know to do a thing and I know it's good and I refuse to do that, that becomes a sin to me. And I think that's a proper application. In this context, however, think about it this way. If I have today, and today is all I am promised, that's it, I have absolutely no promise of tomorrow, and I know that there's a thing that's good that I should do, and I don't do it, it seems to me at some point that becomes sin, or if I presume on tomorrow to get that thing done, it seems to me that maybe is likewise sin. I think at some point we become accountable for squandering opportunities that are in front of us, and we choose to say we'll take care of that tomorrow. So let's recap and let's wrap this up. Don't count on tomorrow. Did we get that? Did I say that often enough? Don't count on it. It may not come. It may not. I could sit here and I could list a fairly long list of people that unexpectedly unexpectedly passed away for reasons that they had no idea and that that morning what happened to them that could be me that could be my story that could be your story we don't know that and so as as we've sat here and we have um and we have contemplated these uh these verses my challenge to each one of us is don't procrastinate in the things that you wish to do or bank on tomorrow it is extremely presumptuous and it is an ungodly perspective to life number 2 much related Let's plan our futures with a very eternal perspective. I'm going to let you make your own pr- practical, personal applications. But don't be overly concerned with the material. Don't do that. Keep the eternal in mind. Number three, let's not get up in what Jesus calls the the, uh, the things of the Gentiles. Yes, we need to make a living. We need to do that. And we need to make some measure of planning. We need to do that, too. But can there be a point where we reach that we say, this is enough, this is it? Can we discipline ourselves to recognize that if our temporal pursuits are constantly hindering our higher callings in life, that it's the temporal that has to take the back seat to the eternal? Can we do that? Number four. I would just challenge us, again, to come back around and emphasize. Please don't expect the future to be like the past. Don't presume on that. It could be. It could be that the next 5, 10 years, 20 years could be much like the past, but there is an equal or I'd say maybe better chance that it will not be. I have very little to point to currently that would make me think that the good old days are here to stay. Uh, as a matter of fact, it just feels like the world and the issues that are in our world right now, uh, we, we sit on the cusp of some very uncharted waters for this generation, perhaps. No, I, I don't mean to be prophetic or a doomsdayer here, but I'm just saying we have to think about that, and I think it's very unhealthy to presume that it, it couldn't go that way. Jesus said one time to his disciples, he said, you need to be as wise as serpents, and as harmless as doves. Now, a serpent is always thinking ahead. He is. He, he's, he's crafty, he's cunning, he's thinking ahead. And he moves carefully, he moves methodically, he moves quietly. The dove, on the other hand, doesn't give a whole lot of thought to the future, but when danger strikes, she moves like lightning. And somehow or the other, if we could marry those two, I think that would be a wonderful thing. Think carefully, think methodically. Think ahead, but when the time comes to move, move. In closing here, I would just like to wrap it up with a, uh, a verse from Psalms. The psalmist says, my times are in your hands. My wife has heard me say more than once that I think I was born a generation too late. It just feels like I'm, I'm, I was born out of time. You know, the, the things that I enjoy just aren't the things that are exciting to this generation, right? So I just, ah, why, why couldn't I have been born at 42? You know, I'd be almost dead. I wouldn't have to worry about this stuff, you know. But that's that's not where God has placed me. He's placed me here in, in 2021 20, for some reason. And my times are in his hands. And your times are in his hands. Let's live our times well. Let's live each day well, and let's live our future. Let's think about our future in a godly and eternal way.